The inspiration for that song comes from St Paul's words in the third chapter of his letter to the church in Philippi where he says, Christ has shown me that what I once thought was valuable is worthless. Nothing is as wonderful as knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. I've given up everything else and counted all as rubbish. All I want is to know Christ and to know that I belong to him. I couldn't make myself acceptable to God by obeying the law of Moses. God accepted me simply because of my faith in Christ. All I want is to know Christ and the power that raised him to life. What inspired such devotion on his part? It was simply his response to the goodness and mercy of God who saves us not because of how well we do or how hard we work, but simply because he loves us. That's grace.
I wait patiently for God to save me. I depend on him alone. He He alone alone protects and saves me. He is my defender and I shall never be defeated. I depend on God alone. I put my hope in him. He alone protects and saves me. He is my defender and I shall never be defeated. My salvation and honour depend on God. He is my strong protector. He is my shelter. Trust in God at all times, my people. Tell him all your troubles, for he is our refuge. Don't put your trust in violence. Don't hope to gain anything by robbery. Even if your riches increase, don't depend on them. More than once I've heard God say that power belongs to him and that his love is constant. You yourself, O Lord, reward everyone according to his deeds. And I am 
John hated school. Sometimes when he was asked to read aloud in class, he, he would get all his words mixed up and, and people would start laughing at him. Sometimes even the teachers would join in. And he really detested that. And when his friends explained to him what he said, he didn't believe them. What they said, he said, just sounded like nonsense. And he used to get so angry and uptight, he'd get into fights. And that just made things worse. He felt useless and stupid. He didn't just hate school. There were times when he felt as though he hated himself as well and everybody else around him. But one day, a new teacher came to cover in John's class and when he got the answer wrong again and everybody started laughing at him again, the teacher told everyone to be quiet. She said that lots of people make mistakes. Sometimes they get their words round the wrong way when they're reading, but she thought she knew what the problem was and she thought she knew that there was something she could do to help John. You see, this teacher recognised that he was suffering from dyslexia. And because she understood what the problem was, she was able to help him. And that, that meant the world to John. Just the fact that someone understood him made a real difference. That someone was prepared to try and help him. You know, the Bible talks about Jesus being someone who really understands us. It means he understands why we get things wrong, why we make mistakes, why we feel the way we do about ourselves, why we get so angry sometimes. If it feels as if everything's getting out of control, then ask him to come, help you, to come to your rescue. He's the one who can keep you safe. He's the one who understands. He's the one who cares enough to sort you out. In the words of our next song, he's the man who calms the sea.
The reading comes from Revelation chapter 12, verses 10 to 12. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation, and the power, and the kingdom of our God, and the authority of his Messiah. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters, who accuses them before our God day and night, has been hurled down. They triumphed over him by the blood of the Lamb, and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Therefore rejoice, you heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury, because he knows that his time is short. Good morning. Please join me as I lead you in prayer. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all that live in it. Almighty God, our trust is in you and we praise your holy name as we bring our prayers before you this morning. We are living in strange and confusing times, but we thank you that we have the assurance you are in control and are working out your perfect purposes. We pray for the world's leaders and governors, governments, that they all may have wisdom and humility and the grace to make wise and right decisions. We ask for understanding and skill for scientists working far, hard to find a vaccine. Father, we do pray especially for poorer countries trying to cope with the virus with so limited resources. Merciful God, please help them. Bless and help the churches and missions and organisations trying to help in often, often in difficult and dangerous circumstances. Lord, while the coronavirus is continuing, we have easily become completely occupied with it. But we would not forget that your people who are suffering in the persecuted churches around the world, thousands of them, many in prison, some in camps, some ill-treated and beaten, simply because they love the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we pray for them. Would you give them patience, keep them strong. May their perseverance and faith move and challenge their persecutors and even lead some to faith in Jesus. Loving Father, as you allow this coronavirus to continue shaking the whole world, please help us to hear what are you saying to us in it. We praise you for the good and positive things that have happened. So much compassion and kindness. Communities coming together to help the, those in need. Hospital staff, ambulance drivers, all kinds of people, often going the, beyond the call of duty. And many more people making huge sacrifices. Thank you too, Lord for the technology that has meant the gospel message has gone out so that many have heard who would never come to a church service. Lord, we pray that you will equip and challenge your church, all of us, to grasp the new opportunities that come. Father, we pray, pray <coughs> out now for our own nation. Oh Lord, we pray that you would restore the honour of your name Forgive us for our wickedness in turning away from you, Lord, and embracing so many things that are contrary to your word. Lord, for your own name's sake, we pray, revive your church. Now, in our church family here at Brighton Road, we pray, Father, that you will give guidance and encouragement to our ministers, deacons, 
and those who are involved in planning and preparing for the future, for future weeks. We pray for any who are lonely. Lord, may they know that you are with them. Any who are anxious, perhaps for themselves, perhaps for family members, some because of lost jobs. Lord, you know each one of us and we pray that you would minister to each one of us as we need. Help us to remember one another in our prayers. Thank you, Lord, that many of us have been able to enjoy Sunday morning services online, but we do long for the time when we can all come together again in our own building. Lord, give us patience and may it be soon. Thank you, Father, for hearing our prayers in the name of the Lord Jesus. Lord, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Amen. This reading is from Matthew, chapter 16, verses 24 to 27. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. 
What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what they have done. Can I lead you in prayer? Thank you, Lord, that you don't call us to anything without giving us the resources to do what you call us to do. You don't ask us to go anywhere you haven't been yourself already. You call us to take up our cross. And that's a really scary thought. But you've walked that path. You know what you're calling us to. We trust that you'll be with us. We trust that your way is best. Be with us, Lord, especially those times when we really don't understand what's going on. Be with us. Hold us. Guide us. Keep us. Help us to be faithful to you and to find that you are always faithful to us. In Jesus' name. Amen.
We are continuing our series in which we are considering the sayings of Jesus. And today we are looking at his words in Matthew 16 verse 26. What good will it be for a man if he gains the whole world, yet forfeits his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? In the Old Testament we regularly find that wealth is seen as a sign of God's favour. In the closing verses to the book of Job, for example, we find that in Job's restoration to a position of grace, his ownership of 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen and 1,000 donkeys is seen as clear evidence that Job is once more in a position of favour. And verses like Proverbs 10 verse 4, lazy hands make a man poor, but diligent hands bring wealth, will have added to a general perception at the time of Jesus that wealth and poverty might indicate one's worth before God. But Jesus' teachings were radical in so many ways. They often turn things on their head. And it was in defiance of this accepted order that he consistently and repeatedly warned against pursuit of wealth. It's a theme that regularly crops up throughout his ministry. His stories about the rich man with Lazarus living in poverty at his gate and of the man who pulled down his barns to build bigger ones are a couple of examples. In the verse we're considering today, those two sentences, what shall it profit a man if he gains the whole world but forfeits his soul, and what can a man exchange for his soul, underline respectively the risk of pursuing wealth and, in eternal terms, its futility. As Christians, we should all understand clearly that enjoying wealth and luxury when surrounded by those who struggle with poverty is inconsistent with our faith. Even before Jesus' ministry, John the Baptist was preaching that someone with two coats should hand one of them over to someone who had none. And Jesus' advice to the rich ruler to sell what he had and give to the poor confirmed the importance of charity. In his epistle, John put it plainly, If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need, but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? So for Christians, it's an imperative that those who are able to must provide for those in need. But Jesus seems to go much further than this. He seems to warn against pursuit of wealth with or without philanthropy. In Luke 16 verse 13 we read his words, No one can serve two masters. You cannot serve God and money. Why is it that Jesus sees a life-seeking wealth at loggerheads with a life of faith? Firstly, I've always been struck by the dialogue between Jesus and those around him following the departure of that rich ruler I referred to earlier. Jesus said, It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. We could linger over the extraordinary metaphor that Jesus used and what it might have meant to his hearers. But for now, let's just look at the dialogue that followed. Those around him responded with a rhetorical, who then can be saved? As a young Christian, I always thought Jesus' answer, all things are possible with God, rather odd, dismissive almost. If all things are possible with God, and all can be saved, rich and poor alike, where is the problem? Let's all strive to be as rich as Croesus. In fact, Jesus' answer was a perfect answer to a question that had missed the point. It turns out that there's no insurmountable problem on God's side of the fence. He's perfectly able to save rich and poor alike. The peculiar thing about wealth is that it causes a problem on our side of the fence. In Jesus' parable of the sower, 
Seeds that fell among the thorns were choked by them, the thorns representing the deceitfulness of wealth. Perhaps Jesus was as aware that in a materialistic world, comfort, ease and luxuries blunt our appetite for God. A felon or even a murderer can be filled with remorse and seek forgiveness, but a person living a life of greed is not likely to be driven to remorse over the health of his bank balance. So the deceitfulness of wealth is its tendency to cushion us from life's hard questions and to give an illusion of well-being. It was James who remarked that those who are poor in the world tend to be rich in faith. So clearly we have to be cautious about wealth. Returning to Matthew 16, verse 26, Jesus points out how gaining the whole world could neither compensate for the loss of one's own soul, nor be the means of redeeming it. I see irony in the fact that in all of history, there's only been one person in a position to take the world. And it wasn't any of the megalomaniacs that have come and gone. Even a lunatic like the Roman Emperor Nero must have realised that some things would remain beyond his reach. In fact, the only person offered the world was Jesus. Satan offered it to him in the wilderness. Matthew and Luke put the order of temptations in the wilderness differently. But I have no doubt that Matthew's sequence is the chronological one. Jesus dismisses two, if you are the son of God, temptations before Satan issues his final, inasmuch as you are the son of God and we both know it, temptation. This is where Satan takes Jesus to a very high mountain and shows him all the kingdoms of the world. It's his last attempt in the wilderness to deflect Jesus from his mission. And Satan is forced to play the part of a gambler, rather like the one seen in movies at the roulette wheel, pushing all the chips onto the table in a desperate all-or-nothing move. So Satan offered Jesus all the kingdoms of the world in return for the one thing he really wanted. Worship. I'm sure that in the wilderness, Jesus already knew his ministry from its beginning to its inevitable end. It was a mission to redeem you and me. Jesus, of course, declared his obedience to his Father. But he must also have known that to redeem you and me, Jesus needed to give something much more precious than the world. So finally, what do we learn from all this? We know that whether we work at self-denial or wealth, our efforts will ultimately prove fruitless. What can a man give in exchange for his soul? Nothing. Our eternal destiny depends entirely on God's grace, shown to us in Jesus as he suffered upon that cross. And as for wealth, we note the instructions of Paul to Timothy. As for the rich in this world, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on uncertain riches, but on God who richly furnishes us with everything to enjoy. They're to be rich in good deeds, liberal and generous, thus laying up for themselves a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of the life which is life indeed.
So may. The grace. Of our Lord Jesus. Christ. And the love. Love of God. And the fellowship of Holy Spirit. Be with us all. Evermore. Oh